Over the next three weeks, we are going to embark on a new series called First Things First. And we will be diving into how to seek God first with everything that we have been entrusted with as we learn how to navigate the demands of this world and just the hectic lives that we all lead in this city. And we are going to be exploring the call of Matthew 6:33, which tells us to seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness. And we will do that over the next three weeks by discussing three things. We're going to evaluate the competition that we face when we have to do that. We're going we're gonna to look at the challenges that we encounter when we're trying to seek the kingdom of heaven first. And then third, we're going to look at the commitment required to do that well. But before we do that, before we jump in today, let's go ahead and pray together. Lord God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in this space this morning. We thank you for another week that has gone by, another Sunday that we are invited to worship you with abandonment and absorb your word. And so I pray, God, that the words that come out of my mouth, that they would be honest and they would be true, that they would be from you, and that every person in this space would receive a pointed message, that they would receive one thing, that you want them to hear so badly. We love you and we trust you. In your name we pray, amen. So just to start things off, who among you thinks that talking about your money with other people is a really fun thing to do? (laughs) None of us, okay. Who thinks that talking about stewardship and how we use our resources is an incredibly awkward thing to do? Raise your hands. You all just said you don't like doing it, so who thinks it's (laughs) awkward? Yeah, it's an awkward thing to do. I just wanted to let you know that we're all in the same place right now as we jump into this series together. Especially in church, we don't like talking about how we spend our time and spend our money and exert our energy, and I am right there with you. In fact, this series has been planned for several weeks now, and really my excitement for it, it has just grown like very minimally. But I still am trusting that God is going to use this series for good. And already as I was preparing my sermon, I was like, oh, yeah, I need this too. I definitely need this. But it is not only difficult for us to talk about stewardship and understand the biblical principles around stewardship, but it's also really difficult to apply those principles to our life and then do it successfully. I think that's one of the reasons we really really struggle with this idea. But there are also some other reasons why I think we avoid it, especially in church. And that's probably because one of three things has happened to you before. Number one, you may have been taught in church or convinced yourself that the church only talks about stewardship because they want my time and they want my money. Number two, you may have received messages about stewardship through the veil of prosperity gospel, scripture promising worldly wealth in return, for faith-filled obedience to God. Or number three, you may have received teaching about stewardship through the guilt of poverty theology, an idea that all wealth is evil and rich people are bad and self-denial is the only way to earn righteousness in God's eyes. Well, none of those three messages are true, and I just want to correct them today before we go any further. First, regarding the church only wanting your time and your money, I am so sorry if you ever felt that when you were in a church and they talked about the importance of generosity. I can tell you that at the table church, we don't want something from you. We want something for you. 
And that's why at the end of every service, when someone stands up here and talks about giving and talks about generosity and giving of their time and, and money, that's why we have them do that. And they talk about their, their life change that they've experienced and how their faith has been transformed. They're not sharing all that just to get you to serve on the slides team. They're sharing it because it has changed their life. When we give our time, our finances, our energy to God, he does more with it than we can imagine outwardly, but he also changes something internally as well. Second, regarding prosperity gospel, giving is not transactional with God. It is not that when we give X, we will receive Y, but rather or not you give X, you have the opportunity to receive the ultimate gift of salvation for all those who believe in Jesus and the life-saving power he brings. And then third, regarding poverty theology, we are called to give sacrificially, yes. But two points here, the only sacrifice that makes us righteous in God's eyes is the gift of his son. And second, giving is never, ever, ever supposed to come from guilt. In fact, 2 Corinthians 9 verse seven, it says, you must each decide in your heart how much to give and don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. Just don't do it, because that's not what it was there for. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. So you might be saying, okay, okay, cool. Pastor Jess, this all makes sense. Thank you for clearing up those three points. Why do we have to do a whole series on this then? Well, number one is because you still feel awkward and uncomfortable. And the truth is that if something makes us uncomfortable, then we probably have to figure out the reason why. We need to spend some time sitting with it. If talking about how we exert our time, spend our money, use our resources outside church makes us feel uncomfortable, if it makes us feel guilty or makes us experience shame, those things are not of God. And so we have to spend some time wrestling with that and figuring out where it's coming from. And then second, it is my responsibility and the responsibility of Pastor Richard and Pastor Angela and Pastor Ramon and Becky, one of our elders, it is our responsibility to teach you the scriptures. And so we would be doing you a disservice if we ignored a large portion of the Bible that talked about this. In fact, just in case you don't believe me how important this is, did you know that generosity and scripture about money and possessions, it is mentioned over 2,000 times in the Bible? 2,000 times. And in comparison, prayer is mentioned about 500 times, faith mentioned even less than that. And of the 38 parables in the New Testament that Jesus teaches, in 16 of them, that's 42%, they talk about stewardship and generosity. See, God knew that there would be things in this world that would compete for our attention instead of prioritizing the call of Matthew 6, which says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And God knew there would be things in this world that would compete for our heart. Instead of us following Matthew 22, 37 through 38, that says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And God knew that there would be things in this world that we would idolize, even though scripture warns us, those who cling to worthless idols, they turn away from God's love for them. We don't know what's happening, but as we cling to idols, we can't see God's love behind us. We've turned our back to it. And so as I mentioned earlier, over the next three weeks, we're gonna be discussing the competition we experience, the challenge we face, and the commitment required when it comes to putting God first and living into that call to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And today, we are starting with competition. Because I believe that many of you love God. And if you don't have a relationship with God, you're at least curious, right? Or else you wouldn't be here this morning. 
And many of you want to prioritize your faith, you want to be generous with what you received, but no matter how hard you want it, something is standing in the way from you getting there, from you putting those desires to be generous into action fully. And why? Why is that? Why is there such great competition when it comes to seeking God first? So we are going to be picking up a story today involving the Israelites, and we're going to be reading from the book of 2 Kings, chapter 17. We're not going to get there for a minute, but if you want to pull out your smartphones or Bibles, you're welcome to start turning there. Some background, up until this point in the Israelites' story, the nation of Israel has been divided, and it continues to be ruled by a series of evil kings, and even though they had God's law, even though they had many prophets and priests and wise people guiding them in the way of the Lord, they still encouraged people to follow idolatry. And they still worshipped false gods that represented things like war and cruelty and sex and power. And not only this, the evil kings would seek out prophets and priests that they could manipulate, that they could use to their own advantage. But before we get to the Israelite story, I want to remind us of what we see in the book of Exodus 20, verse 3 through 6, because it really sets the framework for what we're going to be discussing today, and it's one of the first asks that God gives the people of Israel. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. From the beginning God gives his people this command to have no other gods, to idolize nothing on this, work, on this earth. And I use the word command, but really it is a request that is made out of love. Scripture tells us that God is a jealous God, meaning he loves us so much that he wants all of our hearts. But that is not a selfish endeavor. Rather, he knows that when we prioritize him, when we put God first, our hearts are made more complete. Our faith is made more complete. God made us in his image, and we were made to love him. We were not made to love idols. Now, if you have been around church before, you might already know this. And when I say the word idol, things come to mind like a giant golden cow that we read about in the book of Exodus that the Israelites started worshiping as soon as Moses, their leader, left them to their own devices. And this often causes us then to think of idols in terms of material wealth a prized item that is expensive by worldly standards, something like a nice car or a nice home or a designer handbag, getting our devotion over us giving our devotion to God. And yes, those are all idols. But what I have learned is that the obvious idols are usually not the ones that we have to be that worried about. We're prepared for the obvious idols, the giant golden calves. We know to be careful around them. And as a people of faith, we know anything of great material worth in this world requires an abundance of caution from us. But what we have failed to remember, or frankly, sometimes we've just ignored, is that an idol can be anything, person, or situation that competes for the primary focus of our attention, energy, and devotion, good or bad. Anything, situation, or person, good or bad. I heard a pastor once say that idols are good things that we have made into God things, lowercase g. Good things we have made into God things. That means that the job that God blessed you with, as soon as it starts to take up more time and energy than your time with the Lord, it's in idle territory. We're at risk of that becoming an idol. 
the home that you work so hard for, as soon as it takes up more attention in your mind than God, we're at risk of that becoming an idol. That person that you love dearly, a romantic partner that you have been waiting forever for and you spend all your time thinking about, as soon as they take priority in your heart above God, we're at risk of turning that person into an idol. Colossians 3 verse 5 in the message version, it says, So kill off everything connected with ways of death. Sexual promiscuity, impurity, lust, doing whatever you feel like whenever you feel like it and grabbing whatever attracts your fancy. That's a life shaped by things and feelings instead of by God. And when our life is shaped by things and feelings instead of by God, we are in idle territory. Idolatry is so much more than a shiny piece of gold in the corner. And I recognize that none of this is intentional, right? The obvious golden calves in our lives, we know to be weary about them, we know to exercise caution, And remember what I said earlier, I believe that you all want to love the Lord. You want to please him. You want to have a really fruitful relationship with him. No one wakes up in the morning and is like, oh, today I'm going to make an idol out of something and disrespect my God. No one does that, right? We all have good intentions. We are all good people. But the idols that stem from good things that we have made God things, those are what we have to identify and put in their place a place that is far below our love for God and our efforts to seek first the kingdom of heaven. And the first step to figuring out how to do that is looking at the competition. And so that's our only task for today. We're going to quickly get to four parts of how to identify the competition. So finally, we're turning to 2 Kings chapter 17, and it gives us some context as to how the Israelites fell victim to the competing idols in their life. So we're starting at verse 7. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshiped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. Jump to verse 12. They worshiped idols, though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah, Through all his prophets and seers, turn from your evil ways, observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord, their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he made with their ancestors and the statutes he had warned them to keep. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them. Do not do as they do. Wow. So we are going to dive into this piece by piece together. And starting off, we see that the people of Israel, they followed the practices of the nation and the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. So God's people, God's holy people, they allowed themselves to be influenced by the secular world around them instead of the practices of God. And remember that God's law, it did not disappear. They knew what the law said, and yet the world around them influenced their priorities. It is very much possible to go to church on Sunday, to read your Bible faithfully, to have a loving relationship with God, and still be influenced by the world's priorities, and not live our lives according to what God says is best for us. This begs us to ask ourselves then, 
How is the world influencing your priorities? What non-God stuff are you surrounding yourself with? It's not a very eloquent way to say it, but think about it. What non-God stuff are you putting into your life or into your body or into your relationships that is taking up your valuable resources? I'm not saying that everything of this world is inherently bad, it's not, but you have to figure out what you are putting into your life that is then causing you to prioritize other things before God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 12, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. Some things of this world, they seem harmless, but they sneak up on you, and before you know it, you are owned by them. Look at how you spend your free time. Look at what you spend your money on. I'll be honest with you all, for me, the really slippery slope is expensive skincare. Anyone else? <laughs> like, I, if I have free time, I have Mondays off from church, and sometimes I just like pull up YouTube videos and watch skincare reviews, and then two hours has gone by, and I'm like, oh, I should go to Sephora and spend $60 on this face mask that I don't really need because I am not that old yet. And, <laughs> I allow the influence of what the world has told me I need to be prettier or to be healthier or to be happier to impact not just my budget, but how I spend my time and my self-esteem as well. The world around us, it is not inherently bad, but it can certainly feed the competition. So step one of figuring out what the competition looks like in your life is understanding what the world has told you that you need. Part two, let's continue to verse nine. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. They did things secretly against the Lord. You and I both know that it is often the things that we do in secret that begin to control us and compete for everything we have. The things we do in secret, they begin to own us. The things that we do on a Friday or Saturday night, the places we go when we are sad or lonely, the things that originally seem harmless, but as we continue to do them in secret, they slowly become all-consuming, taking up all our mental energy. And then before you know it, they are destroying your finances. They are destroying your calendar. They are destroying your mental health. They are destroying your, your schedules and your relationships. They take hold of us, and then we can't shake them by ourselves. But see, the Israelites forgot that you can't hide anything from God. That's a good thing. God sees everything. He knows our struggles. He knows our secrets, and he is closer to us than our very breath. There are no secrets when it comes between you and God. And often, when we try to keep secrets, when we forget that God knows everything, that's when feelings of shame and guilt start to creep in. And before we know it, it spirals. And with each secret that we try to keep, we become more insular and less dependent on God and less trusting of him. But remember that guilt and shame are not of God. He does not want that for us. Ephesians 5 offers us some instruction as we battle things in secret, things that compete for our resources. It says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, right? Bring them to the light. Because what happens when we bring things to the light? Verse 13 says, everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated then becomes a light. 
When we bring those secret competitors to God in honesty or to our faith-filled community asking for help, they're illuminated. And what is illuminated has the opportunity to be healed. What is illuminated can't control us. It can't control our time anymore. It can't control our finances anymore. It can't control our relationships anymore. And so we must think about what we're doing in secret. Like the Israelites, what watchtowers are you building for safety and comfort instead of trusting God? And how have those secret expenditures or secret habits or secret behaviors started to control you? Because if they haven't yet, trust me that it's very possible they will soon. As long as something is done in secret and in the dark, we run the risk of letting it control us. And so we must turn over whatever it is, whatever it is we're doing in secret to God, bring it to the light, bring it before community. That's the only way we're going to get a handle on it. Next up, verse 12 tells us that the Lord warned them. He sent wise people, prophets and seers and priests to remind the Israelites of God's commands and what their life could look like if they obeyed. But instead, Scripture tells us They would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord their God. Dang, well, I am pretty similar sometimes to that. I don't know about you, Um, but I am certainly stubborn, and I am certainly self-righteous, and I am certainly stiff-necked sometimes, and I have a feeling that you all have struggled with that too. There are many times when I think that I know what's best, that my way is better than God's way, God makes very clear and specific asks of us, asks that will lead to a life of peace and joy and contentment, but still, we think we know what's best. Even if we've seen it not work for our ancestors, right, like the Israelites, to use modern language, if we have seen it not work for our friends and family, we still do it. And sometimes we are stubborn and we simply want to live according to our own plan, but other times it's driven by fear, right? We don't trust God's way. We like to lean on our own understanding because we're scared, and so we lean on our own comprehension of how the world works. We hear a lesson in church, and you know, at brunch, we're discussing it, and we're like, yeah, that sounds nice. (laughs) That sounds nice, but I know better. That's a good tip, but I'm going to keep living my way because it hasn't hurt me yet, so, you know, I'm fine. I'm fine. Pastor Jess, she's, she's cool and all, but she doesn't know what she's talking about. God teaches us, though, to turn our finances, our calendar, our relationship, and our sources of energy over to him, but instead we keep holding on to them so tightly. We are so stubborn. We are so stiff-necked like the people of Israel, and it leads to this downward spiral of trying to control our own life and control our own resources, and every time we do that, we are just inviting things like fear and stress and anxiety more into our life instead of releasing those things over to God. I want everyone to make a fist and squeeze it really tight. Don't, you know, put it in your partner's or your neighbor's face or anything like that, but just make a fist, squeeze it, squeeze it really, really tight and think about what's happening as you're doing it. Your body's tensing up, your muscles are starting to get a little tired, your heart rate is rising, your body is stressing a little bit. And the same thing happens that when we hold on too tightly to our habits, to our time, to our money. This is what happens when we are stubborn and stiff-necked like the people of Israel and don't trust that God knows better than we do. But if we were just to go ahead and release it, release your hand, and you can feel that that peace, the stress in your muscles, it, it goes away, 
we feel that freedom and that act of letting go, that can transform our lives when we apply it to holding on to our resources. You feel a release and peace when you let go and turn things over to God. We must be willing to acknowledge when we are acting with this I know best mentality and surrender it to God. And in the moments where we don't trust God and his ways of doing things, we can surround ourselves with scripture that reminds us we can trust in the Lord and trust in his ways. One of my favorites is Isaiah 55, eight through nine, it says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. When we are stubborn and don't wanna let go, we can trust that his ways are higher than our ways. We can let go, we can release. And finally, the last piece. Israel's story, it offers us one final warning in verse 15. As the people of Israel rejected the decrees of the Lord and as they imitated the nations around them, scripture says they followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. Every time that we give our energy or our mental capacity or our finances or our time to the things of this world, we risk allowing those forces to rule us. And as we do, those good things, they become God things. When we put them above God, they turn from a blessing to a worthless idol, and we then run the risk of becoming worthless ourselves. It's harsh, but it's true. Because when we begin to live for accomplishment, or wealth, or status, or a cause, or a relationship, we are no longer living for God's purpose, we are living for our own purpose. And in a world that is governed by a mighty and powerful God, our purpose, it doesn't bear any importance if it is not in line with the purpose of God. I have found that in this city, we are at great risk of allowing a good thing to become a God thing, a good purpose to become, in our mind, a God purpose. It happens every time we divorce our cause or our nonprofit organization, our political ideology or status from our primary call to seek first the kingdom of heaven. And each time we do that and place it above God, scripture tells us that it might as well be worthless. We might as well not be fighting at all. We allow what we care about to take all of our resources, leaving nothing left for God, or at the most, a small percentage of leftovers. And I do this too, right? We are, we are in this together. And again, this is often well-meaning, right? We try to live our lives for God, but we have to look out for it, because even good things can become God things. Even a good purpose can become God purpose. And if the example of this city and the many things that we care about in DC is not relevant to you, then I want you to think about your relationships. Think about your health and your fitness, your identities, your insecurities, your fears, your stressors, both good things and bad things. Again, I am not saying that everything that falls under those categories are things not to care about, right? That wouldn't be responsible. But we must be careful to place those priorities under the priorities of God. Because if we don't, we risk them becoming nothing. We risk them becoming worthless idols, losing their value, and in turn, 
we then run the risk of becoming worthless ourselves. Romans chapter 1, verse 21 and 25, it says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than their creator, who is forever praised. We know God, but is he first in our lives? We know God, but do we glorify him with our time and our energy and our resources? We know God, but do we give thanks to him for all he has given us? We know God, but have we exchanged the truth about him for a lie and worshiped created things instead? Because when we really understand the truth about God, those four areas of competition that we discussed today, we can finally surrender them to God. And it's not going to be a one-time thing. We're going to have to keep coming back and re-surrender those different areas of our life, re-surrender control. When we really understand the truth about God, though, what the world tells us we need, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense in comparison to what God says we can freely receive from him. And when we understand the truth about God, then we don't have to feel guilty or ashamed of what we do in secret, how we spend our money, how we spend our time, but instead we are invited to turn towards the light and frankly, we start running towards the light because we realize that God can free us from those things. He is the restorer. He frees us from the past and all those mistakes that we've made. When we understand the truth about God, we happily humble ourselves and that I know best mentality. It fades to the back of our minds as we surrender and trust that God's ways are greater than our own. God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And finally, when we understand the truth about God, the worthless idols in our life, they have no power over us, but instead we rush to release control and to turn those things over to God, the one who loves us unconditionally, knowing that he's the one that gives us our ultimate purpose. He's the one that takes care of us in this world. He's better than anything that we could create on our own, a purpose we could create on our own, our finances that we could manage ourselves. He's greater than that. And in a minute, we're gonna pray. We're gonna pray for all those things, but before we do, this is a three-part series. And what we talked about today, it lays the groundwork for next week. And so I wanna encourage you to ask yourselves a couple of questions right now or even throughout this week. Remind yourself of Israel's story and figure out what is competing for your attention, your time, your energy, your money. What is competing for your heart? Ask yourself, what does the world tell you that you need? What are you doing in secret? Where do you think that you know best instead of trusting in God? And what worthless idols are defining your purpose instead of you grasping onto God's purpose? Once we identify those, then we surrender them to God and we can take practical steps forward, steps toward freedom, steps toward peace, steps toward putting God first and placing everything in his hands. So we have to identify the competition, surrender it to God, and then trust in him. Just remember those three things. Identify the competition, surrender it to God, trust in him. Identify, surrender, and trust. Let's go ahead and pray for that right now. God, we thank you for 
being in this space. We thank you for meeting us wherever we're at. And I thank you for whatever you are putting on the hearts in this room. I thank you for nudging us gently to come closer to you, to draw closer to you, to give you our time, to give you our energy, to give you our finances and our relationships, to give you our hearts. We thank you for that nudge and we know that it's not selfish. It's because you love us so much and you know what's best for us. You know that we don't have to live a life where our, our bad habits are happening in secret or where we are so stressed out about our money or where all the different priorities that we have put into our calendar are just creating so much anxiety for us. We know, God, that we can release those things to you. So Lord, I pray that throughout this week, you would work in all of our hearts, that you would show us what is the world telling us we need that we don't really need when we only need you. I pray that you would reveal to us what we're doing in secret that is actually starting to control us. I pray, God, that we would ultimately remember that you know best, your ways are higher than our ways, your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And I pray, Lord, that you would reveal those worthless idols that are at risk of making everything we do just be worthless if it's not in line with what you do. God, over everyone in this room, I pray, Lord, that they would take the time to identify those things, they would surrender them to you, and then they would trust that you are carrying them forward. We thank you for that, God, and we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.